Well, good morning. It is great, as always, I've said this many times already, to see so many people in the building. Uh, this is a critically important moment and day for the company. That's Howard Schultz, founder and CEO of Starbucks. And he's talking to an auditorium full of executives at the company's headquarters in Seattle. What are we fighting for right now? Are we fighting for the stock price? God forbid. Are we fighting for comps for the stores? No. Let me tell you what we're fighting for. We're fighting for goodness. We're fighting for love. Schultz is visibly emotional. He's taking deep breaths, long pauses, choking back tears as he drives home his point. I've known what it has taken to build this place. I know what, it's at, what is at stake right now. And we have to show, show up in a different way. Howard Schultz gave this speech just months after he came back to be Starbucks' CEO. He had stepped down from the company years ago to do other things, like run for president. But he returned in April to fight what he views as an existential threat to the company, unionization. For the reporting for this story, I spent essentially uh, three months reporting it and made three trips out to see Howard. I watched him, you know, give speeches, and in some cases, like fairly emotional speeches to his employees, kind of exhorting them to, to do better for their workers. And then traveled with him to watch him just meet with his rank-and-file workers. That's Greg Jaffe. He reports on labor movements at The Post. And at this critical moment in the national labor movement, Starbucks workers are one of the most successful groups to unionize. So Greg wanted to know, how does a CEO like Schultz respond? Part of me wanted to understand, what does it feel like when you think you're a good boss, you think you've done a great job taking care of your workers, and all of a sudden they're telling you that your life's work, that this thing you built ostensibly in your mind for them is not nearly good enough. And so what does it feel like when your workers revolt against you? I wanted to understand it from that side. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Ella Izadi. It's Thursday, October 13th. Today, we have the story of an anti-union leader, one who genuinely believes he's a good boss. And what happens when he comes up against workers who say what he's doing isn't enough? Tell me a little bit about what it's like to work at Starbucks and specifically like the unionizing efforts so far at Starbucks. Has it been successful? Can you describe what that success looks like and what is it about that workforce that might make it or not make it right for unionization? Yeah, so it's been really successful by many measures. I mean, it's the most successful unionization effort in America right now. And there's nothing really like it in American history in terms of a national unionization movement. Starbucks workers in upstate New York who voted to unionize for the first time in the face of strong opposition from management. The latest sign that unions may be making a comeback. Since December 2021, there have been about 250, and that's a ton. You know, Howard Schultz will say it's not very much at all. We have 9,000 stores in the U.S. It's a tiny percentage of the stores. But in terms of 
unions which have been flat on their back since you know the 1980s or 90s and losing people, this is a big, exciting thing. As to why Starbucks workers, I think part of it is that they tend to hire a more liberal, progressive group. They tend to be younger, and they tend to be a little bit more educated and have more time to do this kind of thing, to throw themselves into it. Mm. And so Howard Schultz, the CEO who's very anti-union, for his company, how is he responding to this movement within his company? Yeah, very emotionally would be the two words mm. I use for how he's responding, almost as if it's a personal affront. So when you love something so much, you almost want to do anything to defend it, to preserve it, to enhance it, like you would for your, your family. And for so many people at Starbucks, this has become their family and how personal it is. And it is very personal especially when you have an adversary that's threatening the very essence of what you believe to be true. One of the kind of a senior guy advising the Starbucks union, which is very much of a grassroots effort, said to me, I've never met a CEO who hates unions more than he loves money. And that's Howard, I think. He hates unions more than he loves money. And for him, that I think he's, what he's essentially saying, this isn't about money for Howard. It's about his personal identity and what he's achieved in the world. And it's really hard if you're a union trying to negotiate with that because it's very hard to compromise with that. Maybe we can just unpack that a little bit. What is it that's such a personal affront? Is it this sense that he has the self-identity as almost like a benevolent boss and how dare you organize around asking for more when I've already treated you so well and if you need something, you can come to me and there's no need for, for this type of movement? Yeah, I think that's largely it. I'm a good person. How dare you tell me I'm not a good person? I love this place so much, and uh, it's so deeply rooted in me. Uh, and I, I care so much about our people and our families, and I'm, I just uh, want to do everything I can to try and ensure the fact that we are we fix the problems and address the needs and reinvent the company. And is, uh... Starbucks has been very generous with regard to workers' benefits over the years. From the very beginning, it was one of the first companies to offer um, health care even to part-time workers. It offers free college through Arizona State Online to all of its workers who work more than 20 hours a week. It has a stock option plan for people who make over 20 hour, work over 20 hours a week. It's been very generous, especially to early on Starbucks workers. You know, people were buying houses, making down payments on college, all sorts of things, that stock option program. So he had a reputation of, as being a very liberal, progressive, generous boss. And yeah, for Howard, I think it's emotional. It's I, I did all this stuff for you. No one asked me to do this. I did it out of the goodness of my heart. And now you're telling me I'm not a good person. We have viewed our people not as an expense uh, on the income statement. We have viewed our people as a valuable contributor to the growth and success of the company and have tried our best to provide uh, benefits and resources that did not exist as a result of trying to achieve the fragile balance between profitability and, and uh, satisfying the needs of our people. And some of it's his own personal identity. You know, he talks about his childhood growing up and 
you know, talks about how his father was treated by employers and how the family struggled with poverty because his father broke his leg on the job. The family didn't have health insurance. The employers cut him loose. And he felt like his father was sort of broken both emotionally and financially by these cruel employers. So much of the canvas of Starbucks in so many ways has been based on my own life story. Right. And... Um, Providing health insurance is directly linked to growing up in a family that did not have health insurance. Right. Um, so I, I, I've been so blessed to come from a place where the odds were so low to get to access to the promise of the country. And so, yes, I mean, I've, I've tried my whole career to uh, create a opportunity for people at Starbucks to improve and enhance their lives. No doubt. And I think as he built his company, I think he's working out some of his own childhood issues. Mm. Yeah, and it's like maybe in the case of his father's situation, a union could have been very beneficial and needed, but he's viewing it as, look, this is almost like my company is my family, and I, I'm I'm providing for you and taking care for you. I, I said that exact thing to him. I said, Howard, you know, a lot of the union folks say if your father had been unionized, he probably would have had health insurance. Oh. And he says, yeah, my dad needed a union because his employers were bad people, but I'm not. So what did he do when the unionizing effort started at Starbucks? Was he there already? So no, he wasn't there, and this is interesting. So Howard leaves Starbucks uh, in 2018 to run for the presidency. I am seriously thinking of running for president. I will run as a centrist independent. He's running his uh, family foundation um, and doesn't plan to come back. I think he starts to get worried when he sees some of these unionization efforts start in Buffalo. The CEO at the time is a guy named Kevin Johnson, who's a former Microsoft executive, who Howard, you know, handpicked for this role when he left. And I think Howard becomes increasingly frustrated as this unionization effort starts to kick off initially in Buffalo in August 2021 that Kevin doesn't go out there to stop it. Howard goes out there twice, once to talk to managers and once to sort of tell the story of Starbucks in a speech to essentially all the baristas in Buffalo in a big hotel ballroom. That, that I think, I don't know if he would say it, but I, a speech that doesn't go over well with it. He talks about the shame of growing up poor, the shame of poverty, when my father couldn't provide for us and we had to rely on, on charities uh, in Brooklyn where I was growing up. I experienced at the age of seven the imprinting, the shame, the vulnerability, the embarrassment of a family that was really destitute. So much so that many charitable philanthropic organizations over the course of a year, we're delivering food to our small two-bedroom apartment in the projects. For a lot of the baristas who grew up poor, felt like, I'm not ashamed of being poor at mm, all. I, I don't understand why you're telling me that I should be ashamed of my situation. And so there was a frustration of that. And there was a frustration, too, of a guy who is worth $4 billion telling you, look at all the great things I've given you. Why isn't that enough? Uh, and they're feeling, well, you're worth $4 billion and I'm making $16 an hour. How dare you tell me I don't deserve a little bit more? 
Mm. And I, I guess, like, also when I think about Starbucks and having had friends who've worked at Starbucks, you know, helping, it, like, while they were in college and trying to make ends meet, I mean, it is a company that, for that level of worker, did provide pretty generous benefits. But is the idea from these workers, like, what's changed or has it never been enough, I guess? Yeah, no, I think there's a feeling that it it hasn't kept up as much as it should have. Starbucks, you're told that you're partners. You're told that, you know, that's the word they use for their their employees. They're not associates. They're not baristas. They're partners. And so you have certain expectations. And when those expectations aren't being met, I think you feel like, okay, this is my time to stand up. You know, you feel you're owed something. Like sold false goods almost. Yeah, yeah. Or you're not living up to your promises, right? And so I think he comes back in April of this year for two reasons. One, I think he does want to stop this union movement, which he sees as a existential threat to the company. And two, because he does feel like something's broken in the company, that the company hasn't been executing his vision for how to take care of workers. And so I think he feels like, I'm the person who can fix it. I'm the founder of this company. I understand the culture of this company. And so, Greg, you spent a lot of time with Howard Schultz over the course of your reporting. What was it like to see him interact with employees at different stores around the country? Yeah, so Howard's a founder and has a vision for Starbucks. In his mind, he talks about Starbucks cafes, and this is hard for us to see, I think, in a big city like Washington, as almost like this spiritual place where people gather and feel a sense of belonging and commonality. And so to him, it's not a fast food restaurant. It's not a coffee shop. It's a gathering place. It's a the center of a community. We had gone to San Antonio, uh, and he'd done a, a event there with baristas who were telling him how tough it had become in their stores. And then we were going to Uvalde, which is the site of this mass shooting. And I thought, oh, this is going to be crushing. This is going to be so hard for Howard to go there. Um, but it wasn't. And that was, I guess, the thing that surprised me. It was in some ways like energizing for him to see how that Starbucks worked in Uvalde. I think what he sees is the store manager is a woman named Nancy Martinez who's been there about three years. The store's been there about three years. Uvalde is a tiny little town, um, uh, very poor. And in that place, Starbucks is something like exciting. Like there was a line you know, a 45-minute line when they first opened up at the drive-thru. It's like somewhat aspirational, like, oh, I had a Starbucks today. It's like a special thing. And Nancy Martinez knows all the people in the community, knew the parents of a lot of the people who were killed. And so one of the dads whose daughter was killed comes through for an entire week after her funeral, or I think it's actually two weeks, and buys her favorite Starbucks drink to take to her grave. The staff writes, you know, little messages on it. And I noticed reading through the obits of a lot of the kids, I think at least four kids, three or four kids, their parents put their favorite Starbucks drink in the obit. It's a third place. It's a place where the community gathers. And Howard comes out of that just like, this is what I want Starbucks to be. This is my dream. Yeah, seeing how this place that he helped create had such an important place in people's lives or that it just even had a place and that in this tragic moment it was maybe providing a sense of solace and comfort. Yeah, exactly, to people. Right, making them feel a little bit better. And then the question becomes, and the union will say this, and they're not entirely wrong. They'll say, well, is it Starbucks that's providing this or is it 
Nancy Martinez. Maybe Nancy Martinez, the store manager who's from this area or her husband's from this area. This is what happens in small towns. And Nancy Martinez is a good person, but that doesn't mean Starbucks is a good company. After the break, how Howard Schultz tried to win over employees and stop the union. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I'm wondering when Howard Schultz came back as the CEO in April and the spring, what did he specifically try to do to counteract the unionization efforts? It's both some hard things and some soft things. He starts on this listening tour of the country where he goes and essentially asks baristas to tell me about your life. Tell me about the worst days that you're having in these stores and tell me what you need to have a more stable life. What do you need to have a sort of a ladder to the middle class and the American dream? And let me, let's help build that ladder together for you. Let's help improve these stores. So on the one hand, I think that's a big push of what he does. He calls it reinventing Starbucks. The other thing that Starbucks does is it really cracks down on the union. You know, the union has said upwards of 100 of its people have been fired, which is a lot. Can they do that? They can't. And so it's tough. I mean, as you dig into these stories, you find that, you know, they're always complicated. The people who get fired, you know, have usually done something wrong. They've made a mistake. And then the question is whether that mistake is forgivable or would have been in the past, you know, if you're late a few times. Um, and in some cases, you know, the problem is it takes forever for these things to litigate. There was a famous case in Memphis where Starbucks fired seven workers for inviting reporters into the store after hours to do interviews. The courts overruled, essentially said those firings were illegal and forced Starbucks to hire those seven back. But most of the others are just grinding through the system and will take a long time to, to fix. You know, he's given benefits to the non- union stores that he hasn't given to the union stores in terms of raises and some other benefits. Is that like a pressure tactic? I think so. So his argument is, I can't give them to the union stores. The union stores, we we can only give benefits through collective bargaining. Collective bargaining process, you know, can take a year or two years to get the first contract. Which is what happens after the union is formed. You go into collective bargaining to negotiate a contract. Right. And that process has been moving very slowly. I think they're also saying, we're going to make it as painful as we can for you. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned like the listening tour going around the country. Did Howard Schultz learn anything that he didn't realize before? And did it change his mind about anything? Yeah, I think he learned a lot. And he is a good listener. You know, he does care about his people, which makes the anti-union stance complicated. Like, I do think he really wants to do right by his people and cares about them as much as he wants to crush this union. And in a lot of my people's minds, those two things are conflicting. You can't have both those views. I think he does. You know, I think what he learns is the stores are unsafe. 
to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people talked about finding meth and heroin in the bathroom, about dealing with very aggressive, angry customers um, and non-customers, you know, homeless people who were using the stores as a, as a shelter and feeling unsafe. The societal issues of mental illness, homelessness, violence, uh, people feeling disconnected, and, and all of those things colliding into our stores every day, that is what we have not been built for. And I think we have to navigate uh, and, and alter the structural issues of how we serve our customers and our communities, and most importantly, our people in an environment, that, in an operating environment that's very, very different than how the company uh, has been built. I think he learned that, you know, hours are too variable. People are getting, you know, 30 hours one week and 15 hours the next week um, based on uh, the Starbucks algorithm or 20 hours the next week, and they just can't budget that way. So, you know, can we come up with ways to stabilize hours? They learned a lot of his students, despite the free college, are saddled with college debt. Can we help them in that way? I think he learned a raft of things about um, them. I think he also learned, too, that more broadly... That there's just a lack of trust and frustration with institutions in America, and that has to do with government, but it also has to do with Starbucks. So when Starbucks says something, its workers don't trust it or believe it in the way that they used to. And, and what do the organizers, the union organizers, have to say about Schultz's efforts, and how have they reacted to his campaign? And what does this pushback look like? Like, are people physically protesting, or what have you sort of seen? Yeah, so there's been a lot of stores that have been picketing, both because of the union busting, the firings. They'll they'll go on short strikes for two to three days, four days here and there. So we understand trying to get us to standards, but the new techniques that you are implementing consist of a unilateral thing as well. Those were not negotiated. Those were not bargained for. Those were they do these things that Starbucks really hates, called marches on the bosses. They'll march on their store manager, essentially stand in front of their store manager and read a letter out laying out their demands and their complaints with regard to Starbucks in the cafe. So, we demand you stop cutting or changing our hours. It's gotten very contentious. I think Starbucks will say, too, and Howard has this view that I found really puzzling. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of these stores with a lot of these unionized workers. And it's always struck me that it's a very grassroots effort. It's somebody's hours were cut. People are having trouble making a living. They get upset. They're frustrated. They call the union. Howard and Starbucks has this view of it as that these are professional agitators who've infiltrated their company. And we've got many, many so-called competitors that are every single day trying to intercept the traffic, trying to get our customers. And now we have a group, an organization, trying to take our people. And I would imagine that's incredibly frustrating and insulting to those who are organizing from the grassroots to the suggestion that they were somehow influenced or that it's not even people who are who make up the company. It's outsiders who are doing this. Right. You're not a real you're not a real employee. You're a, an activist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is insulting to them. But I understand why it happens, too. It feels like I'm trying so hard for these people. How can they, how, how are they not listening? 
Have Howard's efforts to stop unionization in Starbucks stores worked? Yes, I think they are working. I think the raises, particularly the notion that raises and benefits are going to the non-union stores but not going to the union stores, have slowed things down. I think the firings have slowed things down. Whether, you know, Starbucks says we haven't fired anyone for union activity, and I guess we can debate that endlessly. But whether it's true or not, there's the perception that you can get fired for union activity is out there. And I think that's dissuaded people from unionizing. So the number of stores filing for elections has slowed. You know, it's gone from 71 at its peak in March, I think, uh, for September this last month. I think it's 10. I mean, but they're still unionizing. It hasn't stopped everything completely, right? Yeah, but, you know, they need leverage to get a contract. And so after a year, the way this works, a year after the election, workers can petition to decertify the union, essentially to dissolve it. And so, you know, the union's in a race to get as many stores as they can, as much leverage as they can, to force Starbucks to negotiate a favorable contract for them. I think their fear is 200 stores, 300 stores, 500 stores. You know, I don't know what the right number is that that they can start to impose some pain on Starbucks and on Howard Schultz to come to the negotiating table and to bargain a contract with them. And Greg, what was your last visit with Schultz like? So the last visit, I I was there for what they call their investor day. Good morning. It's great to see you all. It's really going to be a seminal day in the history of Starbucks Coffee. Which was a big day about the sort of the reinvention of the company. You know, essentially announcing I've been on the road for the last five months. Here's what I've learned. Here's how the company's changing. Now, there's one difference between today in years past, and that is the strength of the equity of the brand and the demand that exists for Starbucks coffee all over the world. So it was to introduce the changes he'd made to the company, introduce their expansion plans. I think Howard wants to return the, the company to very aggressive growth, both in the U.S. and overseas. So, And I think he comes away from it energized, feeling like I've the phrase he used was, it's a seminal day, we've returned the soul of the company. And I think by that he meant, you know, the previous leadership um, that he had replaced, he felt like hadn't done a good job of listening and and taking care of the employees. And he now listened to them, they were doing things to take care of him, the employees, that they had. he had restored the soul of, of the company and the culture of the company. When I spoke with him, I pushed him a little bit on the firings and whether you know, his anti-union rhetoric had convinced managers to crack down on baristas. So there have been a lot of firings, and it's out of character with, with who you guys are. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Okay, okay, I understand, I understand. I, I feel like I have to I have be to honest ask, because it doesn't I'm, make sense I'm, to I'm, me. I'm very, after all that we have been through together, and all that we have experienced, uh, I'm surprised that you are. Well, let's let's leave it here. And for Howard, I kept thinking, like his opposition to the union is not. I think it's for the most part not rooted in financial issues. It's rooted in emotional issues. So let's try and approach it from that perspective. Let's help him understand the emotion on the other side. And I guess that's the thing that struck me going around with him, listening him to him talk to workers. 
the non-union workers, because he doesn't meet with the union workers for the most part, is, you know, he is a person who's capable of, of real empathy. And so I thought, well, let me see if I can't break through in some way. And so what I had done was there's a store about two-tenths of a mile from his house where he goes for coffee in the morning that's unionized. And the lead union organizer sometimes makes him his coffee. It's a woman named Elise Whistler, who's 25, very bright young woman, and she started organizing her store because their hours were cut. And so he'll come in at 5.30 in the morning, she'll make his coffee, and she ran through to me, like, all the things I wish I could tell this guy that I can't about my life, about what he's doing to this union movement, about why we feel like we need to do this. I think even if Howard and every single Starbucks employee wanted the exact same thing for the company, for the employees, um, having a contract that says that those can't be changed without negotiations, that those can't be changed without like a legal process um, is so valuable for the job security um, and just the like personal comfort, lack of anxiety um, in a company that he's had to come back and slap a bandaid on three times now. Right. Um, having that written in Sharpie instead of in pencil. Right, right, right. Yeah, having instead of trust. Yeah, not necessarily just depending on trust. And the anger she feels. I mean, because, you know, Howard lives in a $21 million house, a half mile, two-tenths of a mile from this place where she's working, struggling to pay her bills. She's got a second job, pet-sitting 40 hours a month to, to you know, pay her rent. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who's giving raises to non-union workers, but is not giving raises to her or some of these raises to her and her coworkers. Like, she feels partially out of spite for the what she sees as a legal decision that they made. And so I ran to, through to him, and I tried to say, hey, you know, can you understand when you go in your coffee this in the morning to get your coffee, what this person feels like? So I went to Madison Park and talked to the Elise Whistler, who's the, who's the lead organizer at that store. She's a two-and-a-half-year partner. She's made you coffee on a number of occasions. And I think she, what she said to me is she's like, it makes, us, it makes me so angry that we're being denied these raises. Um, that he, We've waived the right to bargain on them. Um, the NLRB has said we should get them. And just to clarify, the NLRB is the National Labor Relations Board, and they're kind of the referee for when you have labor disputes between companies like Starbucks and Starbucks Workers United, the union. And I, with the inflation and the pressures we're under, you know, she said when Howard comes in the store and I'm making him his coffee, I want to say, how can you do this to me and to my colleagues? Um, you know, we made a decision that's protected by law and, and we're being punished for it. And the word she uses is it, it feels petty and, and cruel to her. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would wonder what you would, wh- what your thinking is on that. Because it, it just doesn't make sense with the rest of what you do. Uh, I appreciate the question. And I think our relationship, going back months now, has been one I've tried to be as forthcoming, honest, and sincere as I possibly can on so many different... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have been. You uh, answer my questions and you yeah. listen. Yeah. Uh, this is not a question I'm going to answer. Um, we're following what we believe to be the law. And I just think that's yeah. factually incorrect. Yeah. I, I, on this one. Yeah. On this one, just to yeah. be brutally honest. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. They've waived the right. The NLRB has said you're in violation of the law by doing it. Not just the regional office. In fact, the, the head of the NLRB, although not officially, has weighed in on it in yeah. a Guardian interview. Yeah. It just seems, I mean, as she'll say, look, I'm making 1786 an hour at this job. Howard's living two-tenths of a mile down the street in a $21 million mansion. How can he do this to me? I think we gotta, we're not going to go there. Okay. Okay. Um, I just couldn't get him to see it that way. I think he sees them as either activists or people who are manipulated by activists for the most part. And so he didn't want to talk about it. I think what he did was he shared another story with me, which is equally true, which is, you know, he was telling me he was going into co- to get a coffee that morning and one of his the workers at corporate who had started off as a barista out in the country had stopped him and told him how grateful he was for Starbucks, how Starbucks had saved his life. The guy was um, gay and grew up in a small town in Virginia, went to work at the Starbucks and was, you know, told him it was the first place he felt welcome. And I, I'm just sitting here, you know, and so when you ask me all these other questions, I sleep well at night knowing we have uh, done our very, very best to uh, exceed the expectations of so many people. So I think Howard sees that goodness and he can't see the aggressiveness on the other side. In some ways, you think if you're so convinced of your own goodness, it's hard to see the mistakes sometimes. Mm. Craig, I'm wondering what you learned from your reporting about this specific company, CEO and its workers, what that reveals to you about the larger dynamic between companies and the labor movement. I initially was like, it's really hard to to do these things. I think when Starbucks started happening, there was a lot of hope within the labor movement that this would take off and work. And I'm not sure it will work. Mm-hmm. You know, it strikes me that labor law in the country really favors the employer right now. So, you know, when they, when someone gets fired, you know, it can take, the fast track is six months to decide whether the person should be hired back. That's an emergency order. The normal process is a year or two or three years. And by then, with the turnover in these stores, the stores are turning over so fast that it's hard to build a good group of leaders who will stay. The biggest question I have is the just tell me how this ends question. Like, how it ends has real implications for the American labor movement. Like, if this fizzles out and the Starbucks baristas don't get, the Starbucks union doesn't get a contract, if it falls apart, I think it's going to be a huge setback for the American labor movement because I think it's shown, at least in this sector of the economy, which is, you know, the service sector, which is this massively growing sector, it's almost impossible to unionize. I think in Starbucks, we have this sort of perfect storm of circumstances. You know, you have the pandemic coming out of that. You have a labor shortage. You have a motivated, educated, online, organized workforce with time on its hands. And if they can't make it work in this instance, I'm not sure what hope there are for other workers in this sector. And so if we're thinking about worker power and inequality and how do we rebalance it, if this doesn't work, then I guess I come away thinking that unions probably aren't a good solution to these big problems in America right now. Thanks, Greg, so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Greg Jaffe is a national reporter for The Post. Savvy Robinson produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was edited by Ariel Plotnik and mixed by Renny Svernofsky. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.